A1 Good Investing is not qualified to give financial advice. No part of this episode should be taken as advice. The content of A1 Good Investing is information and opinions. Information, including financial data and derived figures, may be inaccurate. Today I'm looking at a company called Yuchi Technologies and they are they make electronic control modules. They're a uh, 134 billion ringgit company, which is 430 million Australian or about 300 million US. And they sell um, electronic control modules, which are basically printed circuit boards um, that are set up to control uh, coffee machines primarily, because that's where the, the company has found the vast majority of their customers. But it could be anything, anything that involves a sequence of like or of things happening electronically that it creates a process. Like those, those thermomixers probably have pretty robust electronic control modules and obviously various different types of um, manufacturing equipment. And these guys also have customers in biotech. So yeah, the um, most of them are patented. So like they're a kind of an original design manufacturer and original uh, all based on the power of their ip so most of the value in this company is within their ip but as i said this this company while they have a very very good metrics they have really high exposure to one product basically and and like two customers or basically just one really large uh, customer so when you look at the valuation of this company compared to the quantitative metrics, it's phenomenal. But the reliance on one customer really makes it far more high risk than how it looks on paper. So I just mentioned you can also listen to this on Spotify or Google Podcasts. I feel like listening is probably, probably would be easier if I was listening to this than watching it. But anyway, um, I got that note there that they're a driver for business to business customer success. So rather like they do focus on the end customer, the person who buys the machine at the end, but they want, they basically aim to become indispensable and to create these control modules that are the most sophisticated and the cheapest because then their customer can make their own products better and then compete in that different way. But that's their, that's their main focus. So I will go through the industry, uh, which is control module manufacturing first. So a bit more of a description on that. They're, they're a type of circuit board, just a pretty standard printed circuit board that controls a machine. And these are, these are very, they've been used for decades. Oh, and they, it's like a bunch of different sensors that they have temperature sensors, weight sensors, uh, light sensors, that work together and then go through the the chip, I guess, or the, the, the control module to respond reactively to what something that's happening, like the temperature, and initiate a process process of sequences in a in an appliance or a machine. So they're they're complicated, but they're not they're not like TSMC's chips, you know, they're they're pretty um easy like they're pretty common and pretty widespread and not in incredibly difficult to make but when you get towards the more premium products like these coffee machines or or like a thermomix or something they it is important for them to be 
A, manufactured in a very robust way, in a very efficient way, and in a very low fail rate way that performs every single time without fail and performs, you know, pretty complex stuff. And also that they're, you know, that, well, the, the, the fact that they're manufactured to be very cheap and also have very high quality. Um, that's what I'm saying. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really understand it enough to talk about individual, like what is, makes a good circuit board or a bad circuit board other than those things that I just said. But in this case, I think you can look at the history that these guys have with their customers and you look at, look at you can look at the attitude of their management to come up with a pretty good case that they're quite confident and they have quite a good high level product, even though I don't actually understand exactly why they have a very high level product. Um, and a, a, a part of that is also just looking at their their metrics. It, they're really, really phenomenal. So it allows me to look past, I guess, a little bit of that. Um, in terms about the value that these provide to customers, obviously it's the same, the automation and the sequencing of electricity, different parts of the machine. So that's just automating labor, saving us time. You think about how long it takes to, to make yourself a coffee in the morning. Um, this does it uh, much more quickly and it also provides a, a more consistent product or there could be a bit of a downside if you like doing things individually like having your own unique way of doing it but they tend to provide a more consistent product and yeah save us on labor in terms of a dedicated control module manufacturer their direct customers are the other businesses so the way they provide value is just by having that entirely different set of skills in manufacturing really robust, efficient, cheap products with a high level of complexity versus the coffee machine maker or the appliance creator or they assemble generally lots of different bits and then sell it. They're, they just have a different set of, of values and skills designed around you know the aesthetics or just deciding on the functionalities and doing all of that more intellectual work. Um, or that more different kind of intellectual work. And so the, pretty much every company that uses these electronic control modules outsources them from a different company who's more focused in a way that Uchi technologies are. Margins in the industry, highly variable depending on how generic the product is um, versus how, how sophisticated they are and how valuable the IP is. So you can have something that, that is patented as like control modules for coffee machines. I'm not sure if that's the exact patent, but just the fact that they own that intellectual property, even if it is easy or whatever, even if other people can replicate it, they own the patent for that or the intellectual property for that. And so the, the stronger their portfolio of intellectual property, the higher the margins they can get as well as all the other things like having great customer relationships um, in term and yeah on the other side having low costs so the costs are raw material and labor um, ongoing maintenance of equipment re reconfiguration of equipment when you come up with a better way to manufacture in term with this stuff there is a lot of rearranging the process to make higher returns on invested capital in the future and R&D. So R&D is effectively everything 
in Uchi and in a lot of these companies. And so that R&D is getting in more of that, that IP, creating more of the IP that is so valuable. Um, and it also just builds upon itself. So if you've been dedicating millions of dollars to R&D for a specific product for a very long period of time, you're probably going to have the best way to do it or you're going to have an, a significant advantage uh, in that. But I guess in terms of the fact that that is an ongoing cost, it's about doing that efficiently so that you are providing a product at a reasonable price. R&D is also the major barrier in the industry uh, in terms of competing over these more uh, premium and lucrative customers. Having the best R&D and the best track record of saying, hey, I'm going to make you a product that does this and then delivering that product at the right cost on time, being able to do that to, to for customers consistently, and in which is having very robust R and D, that's your major barrier. And also, just if if a com- even if a company's not amazing, if they've been working with a customer for decades, it's a pretty large barrier to them changing that because it it. In some products, I guess it just changes the entire appliance that they have. If they're going to change their the control module, it could change every all the capabilities of the appliance and everything in the end. Uh, so yeah, the R and D is massive. Uh, they the state state of the art research, or more broadly, um, having an awareness of the product space is another part of that that barrier. Because of the way that these products development de- develop, they tend to. There's a lot of potential for disruption. So just being on top of where that disruption is coming from, how viable it is, knowing when to jump into it, which is very very difficult. Um, I've read a few books that talk about that, and and it's far more difficult than you would imagine to know when to pivot and jump onto a different kind of product, um, despite the fact that it might look great it's it's very difficult and yeah i guess the other barriers are just those standard barriers of entry in terms of being a manufacturing process that requires pretty large fixed um expensive assets all right uh influences on the industry political influence is not much of an issue china is a major manufacturer so increasingly people are trying to avoid being in china but it's also the cheapest place to be. Uh, regulations, again, not too much of an issue. They're quite favourable for the most original design manufacturers. For example, UTR, a pioneer. They're listed as a pioneer company, which means they get a, a regulatory tax advantage. But apart from that, regulation is not too impactful. The economy is quite impactful because in terms of these products, they are a discretionary purchase so consumer sentiment and just how things are developing in the economy are, are very impactful uh, for example just during the gfc it was it, it really really hit these these guys hard um socially socially i guess for coffee there's a bit more of a move towards home coffee drinking and i guess coffee drinking and high quality coffee drinking in general other things like having more households, um, demographic uh, wealth of coffee machine purchases is is favourable. And yeah, for other uses of uh, electronic control modules like like uh, automated manufacturing machines and 
precision weighing machinery like they use in biotech. Um, they're more secular trends that, you know, industrial 4.0 and the, the rapid replacement of lots and lots of different machinery. They're, they're expected to have quite robust uh, growth into the future. Um, and it's a similar thing with technological, just, just it, it's, it's in terms of technological, it's, it's kind of in a sweet spot where there's, it's, it's kind of low cost and simple enough to be rapidly adopted. Whereas, you know, the most state of the art stuff doesn't get rapidly adopted and, uh, the cheapest stuff, the margins are too slim. So it's in a very sweet spot there in terms of where we are today, technologically, 10 years ago, they would have been too expensive and. 30 years in the future, they might be too cheap and too slim margin. All right, so more on Yuchi Tech, the company. So their exposure to coffee machines is 85%, and it's mostly in Europe, and it's these big companies. They don't name them, but it's pretty It's pretty much Jura, Nestle, and Siemens who then supply on, but they go through a intermediary then go on to those coffee machines creators and then to the final end customers like you and me. They were founded by Mr. Ted Cow, who is a Taiwanese gentleman. Um, he founded the company over 40 years ago and he decided to found it in Malaysia rather than in Taiwan. Yuchi conduct R&D as an ultimate priority and so they outsource the assembly and other activities as far as they can. Um, to other to external third parties and also to their Chinese um, subdivision, the Chinese facility has more more square feet than the Malaysian facility, and yeah, that's for the assembly. And the Malaysia headquarters is basically for for research and development. Although I'm sure they do manufacture there as well, but their tagline is is customer satisfaction is our purpose for existence. So yeah, just conducting that research and development, often in cooperation with customers, do to be satisfactory. All right, uh, the management. So there's Mr. Ted Cow there. He, as we said, he's the founder. The um, he's now an executive director, and the current managing director has been at UG since 1990. Uh, he worked. Sorry, Ted Cow worked at Crops. So they're a big German uh, home appliance maker and they he worked in the bathroom scales division. So they're, they're kind of, he brought, brought the control modules and his knowledge of all that into more precision weighing modules and then developing different kinds of control modules. Other management and other board, other directors are also tied to pretty high quality companies. So... It's good to see, like they they have genuine, very high level experience in very high level electronic appliance companies such as Sharp and Bosch. Uh, one of them was in the Bosch auto auto manufacturing. They have a skew towards being U.S. educated, so a lot of them went across to the U.S. for their education. Um, many, most of the directors and key management have been in those current roles for years and years and years. And I think some of the more recent ones, it's like they've been there for only five years, whereas the others have been there for 10, 20 and 30 years. And yeah, there's a lot of hands-on experience 
within this management group. So just being operations managers or, or being just very involved in the the um, the electrical engineering and in the in the day to day of these businesses, which is so essential when you're working with R and D and stuff. Having a having a view of things not from just coming in because you're a good manager, but because you're coming in because you're a good manager and you know this business very well. It's very advantageous to have managers and directors that are have an awareness in that way. And this is the important part for me. So alignment, that graph shows the, this is 2020, the 2021 report's not yet out, but they've been buying shares in the last year and that's on top of an already very significant number of shares held. It's quite an expensive share. So these shares are, are over two ringgit per share. So you can do the calculation, 190,000 ringgit, that's um, a few hundred thousand dollars so it's not a small amount that that some of these directors have bought and their their remuneration collectively is only seven million ringgit or two two to three million dollars for all the directors so their their alignment through shareholding is very um shows a lot of confidence and that's what helps me get over some of the hurdles that of of a lack of knowledge in this company the communication that they have with shareholders is also very, very good. So they print they a lot of companies in Malaysia are not very transparent, and these guys are relatively quite transparent. So they they publish their um, transcripts of AGMs where you can just read every everything that happens. I'm sure that they get altered a little bit, but you can read about some of the mistakes they've made, some of the responses to to things that have happened in the past. They were ordered by audited by Deloitte, which is just a little bit of a, a, a boost to, to their credibility because they Deloitte don't really mess around. Um, and yeah, just those, those transcripts are quite enlightening. If you're interested in this company, I'll jump on their website and have a read through those. All right, uh, strategy. So the strategy of Yuchi. So this is not, I believe, that the key part of their strategy is a high return on investment focus, although it's not really explicitly stated this way. Their behavior is as though they are entirely focused on very high ROI activities and not um, not wasting resources on anything else. So this has organically, just through what where their strengths have been, has led to a very extreme focus on these coffee machines and on this single customer the value in their strategy the value of their ip and r&d is very heavily emphasized and they really moving forward in the future everything is going to be r&d and ip and outsourcing all the hard labor and manufacturing and assembly stuff the the purpose as stated in their strategy of the R&D, is to make themselves indispensable to their customers. And they um, solidify this with a commitment to 7% of annual revenue being driven into R&D. Um, so, yeah, they also have sole, sole supplier agreements and own the patents and IP. So that's the basic overall operational strategy of Yuchi. The, as I said, the, the management are quite confident in this overexposure, but they have tried to diversify in the past. So in 2014, in those AGM transcripts, it was said that they were committed to um, 
50% of their revenue coming from biotech, which is their major um, other source of revenue. Uh, the timeline given was in the long run. And this was neither achieved nor repeated in um, following years. And the strategy for them, the strategy to find new customers and more diverse sources of revenue is pretty weak. It's it's said to be international exhibition of their ability. So I guess that's going around to trade shows and stuff. Um, but I didn't see much evidence of that. They, they, they do say they have biotech products in the making. They reportedly occur under non-disclosure agreements and this could be true and the gestation period of these products products can be many years. So it is possible that they um, come up with, with, with something that is very um, high ROI and new source of revenue, even if it's not that high, even if they're only getting a 15% return or 20% return on, on a more diverse set of revenues, that would be really, really good, and I'll talk about that later, but it's pretty obvious why that would be great for them in terms of an investor. Um, but yeah, it's just about the opportunity cost of pursuing these rather than driving everything they've got into um, the coffee machines and maintaining those customer event those customer relationships that they have. So yeah, the, the final element of the strategy is cost-cutting. So that's just about constantly being willing to re-engineer and refine products to to maintain that that very lowest cost and just make it impossible for their their um customers to move elsewhere because they that because no one else can possibly deliver the same thing at a cheap at a cheap price and also, but just also make making the most of this situation they have now companies could be um, a bit slack and just allow costs to blow out because they're making such massive returns but they do have very aggressive cost cutting they went pretty deep into solar and got a massive um, amount of revenue i say massive a couple million ringgit in revenue just from um, solar solar panels that they built and yeah they just talk about a lot of different other cost cutting methods all right so quality of earnings now uh, these charts I get from TradingView, if anyone's interested. But as I said, they, their earnings are basically incredible from a quantitative perspective. So we've got net margins between net margins between 40 and 60%. Basically every year it fell under 40% in 2008, and we all know what happened then. That was the GFC. Uh, revenue itself is growing at a good clip. Since then, that that was a big downturn for them. But since twenty ten, revenues doubled. Um, COVID COVID wasn't as impactful because consumer sentiment didn't change as much. It wasn't as much of a thing where no one was going out and buying. There was a lot of money around, so COVID didn't um, have as much of an impact. But because in Malaysia they're very strict about movement control orders, they weren't permitted to work for long periods of time. They had a few workers get COVID and so they're shut down. And so that, that definitely dragged their revenue down. And it was the first kind of down year of revenue for many, for like nine years or something. But they've come back strongly in this past 2021. I think they forecasted 1% or they forecasted low single digits and they got 10%. And 
maybe they need to be better at forecasting. Just because you forecast low and beat that doesn't mean that you've um, succeeded, but also it was a very uncertain time. So, yeah, they did very well to, to earn 10% increase in revenue in the past year. But, yeah, the, the big problem is that reliance on two customers. So the, official, the actual numbers are 70%. Sorry, 77% of revenue is from customer A and 9% is from customer B. So you've got 86%, it rounds down to 85% of revenue coming from two customers. These customers, they're, they're intermediaries and then they go on to customers who are the global leaders of the coffee machine industry. So they're absolutely very, very high quality customers, but it's very, very concentrated and it, it is unsettling um, for anyone who's interested in invest, investing in this company. These relationships are quite long-standing, going back to the early 2000s. Um, that supply is in Europe, but they transact in US dollars and they have a few US customers. They have a few Asian customers as well and that Asian... That Asian region, I like going forward because that is where you're seeing the highest growth in home coffee machines. Um, and I, hopefully they can work with some local coffee machine uh, manufacturers. They might, they might not be allowed to because they are um, sole suppliers. There's, there's contracts in place that, that prevent them from selling to other coffee machine makers. But it's just good that the local area in Asia, they saw a boost in revenue last year from that. Again, may have been biotech, um, uh, but that area is, is increasing in terms of coffee machines. The biggest influence is just that consumer discretion, as we've talked about, the fact that consumers are have different sentiments in different years to how much they're willing to spend on new appliances like home coffee machines. In terms of our strategy that Malaysia is one of the co countries that's going to start having they already have and will continue to have a rapid um, uptake in these premium home appliances. It'd be nice if their customers were in Malaysia, but they're not really. So this doesn't really fulfill that thesis that I have as much, but I just stumbled upon this company on Bursa Malaysia and thought they were really good. Uh, the non-coffee revenue, it's, it's specifically deep freezer control modules, precision weighing control modules, um, touchscreen display and light sensors and centrifuges so the common theme is they all involve some sort of weight precision weight and temperature and they're used in biotech and I don't know that much about it but it makes sense to me that having that they're common elements the things that you use in a coffee machine where you're weighing the beans and uh, you sensing the temperature of the the, the coffee and whatever, they can be transferred directly across to uses in biotech. Um, but yeah, they appear to be a very high quality supplier. Just given the quality of their customers, the longevity of these agreements, um, the efficient mix that they have of cost and quality, they have very low fail rates. The, the limit is like 0.2% and they get like 0.2%. 1.5 or something or 0 0.08 they, they they talk about their fail rates and how they're quite quite a bit lower than what they could be they also have really good on-time rates because like that the, the on-time rate was like 85 percent 
it doesn't sound great, but I think that also includes projects. And so 85% on-time delivery of projects is, is quite good. So given that they do have, they are very high quality creator and a, a designer and manufacturer, it makes sense to me that they could have other customers if they pursued them more aggressively. However, who's going to settle for a 25% ROI when you're getting 40 or 50 or 60? So maybe that is why they haven't diversified. And management say that, of course, they're going to say that, but that management do say that. And it seems highly plausible to me. In terms of costs, they're exposed to labor, both in Malaysia and China. 10% of the Malaysian workers are migrant workers, which is not too bad. Like a lot of companies, it's far more. So they're, they're minimally exposed to those migrant workers. And they are also, that means that on the other hand, most of their workers are Malaysian nationals and labor costs among that group are potentially um, going to rise rapidly. The diversity in labor costs exists in the fact that they have 22% of their fixed assets in China, but that's all assembly, and that could be outsourced to... If the China plant fails, which I don't think it will, but if the China plant failed, surely that they can still get other third-party manufacturers to to do the, the labor. Maybe they earn a bit of a less, less of an ROI, but... The things that solidify the power of their earnings, being the IP and the R&D, are not under threat if labour costs um, skyrocket in China and in Malaysia. It's just their ROI that's under threat, but that's not an existential risk. And there's a lot of room to, to become lower and still be a great company in that regard. Raw materials are also a big cost. Um, but they have a pretty good history of controlling that inventory. It's though it's the laminated printed like that material of the the green square that these circuit boards are printed on. That material is a very it's hard to make. It's very um, expensive material for something that's used so much, but it's an abundant material, and they trade that in a way that has earned them money in the past. They just make sure they have really big stores of inventory. so, if you're ahead of that, um, you can you can do well and be less exposed to increases in that raw material cost, which they have done. So yeah, I like their earnings apart from the fact that they are heavily exposed to customer A and customer B. All right, so capital allocation. They, again, they have an exceptional return on invested capital. Um, they're also quite shareholder friendly. So the the count the share count has gone from I think it was three hundred and ninety million up to four hundred and fifty odd million in the past ten years due to an employee share incentive um, thing, and that's acceptable considering the fact that they uh, issue dividends that yield between five and seven percent. So you can do the math and say that it was about one percent per year that they that you lose due to dilution and then five percent that you get back in yield so they are quite shareholder friendly and the management themselves are large shareholders the dividend policy is 70 percent of profit after tax and yeah the 
the other kind of capital allocation activities such as core capacity upgrade, that's all R&D and they've stated that they don't want to expand manufacturing capacity. And the R&D itself, they, the list of things that they like to invest in, I guess, is projects with customers, internal, internal manufacturing process improvement, um, power consumption, uh, i.e. solar, uh, waste management, and then a pipeline of new non-coffee products. And that's all a bit opaque, but the major focus is improving their R&D and lowering the costs of those that R&D in terms of power and waste management, lowering the environmental costs in terms of waste management. Uh, they operate out of the same buildings in Penang in Malaysia and Dongguan, China. Dongguan is is near Hong Kong. I think it's a couple a couple hundred kilometers from Hong Kong um, on the mainland there. So yeah, it's not close. But that Dongguan facility was opened in two thousand and six. They've been there since, and the Penang facility has been there since nineteen eighty nine. So yeah, there's no major. Uh, capital allocation towards expansion in terms of property, plant, and equipment. So yeah, the result of these allocation activities is remarkable returns between twenty point nine eight percent in financial in financial year twenty fourteen, up to forty nine point oh nine percent in financial year twenty twenty. So yeah, you can say is it is their strategy good? I don't know. Is it's either a very high risk that they've taken that's paid off. Or it's incredible investing, you know. Warren Buffett just swing hard if you get if you get something, and they're obviously swinging very hard at this this coffee control thing, coffee control modules, and it appears to have paid off. So there's no guarantee that they're not taking a massive risk that could fail, but you have to assess that risk. I don't think it's a massive risk. I think they're probably pretty on top of it. I've read other analysts say the same thing. I'm obviously influenced by what I read and, and a few analysts like a guy from Interpac was saying that he has the same view just based on talking to the company and through looking at how things have gone on, um, the value of their IP, the thing that locks in their value is quite, it's something that can't be competed away as such because it's IP. All right, last section, valuation. So starting off on a net asset basis, cash equivalent and property is 110 million ringgit. Total assets, total net assets, so taking off all liabilities, is 180 million ringgit versus that market cap of 1.4 billion ringgit. Um, so there's very little asset backing in terms of tangible assets and yeah this just indicates that all their value is in their IP and their R&D. I think that the most likely culprit for how the market values this company is basically a dividend discount model with a risk premium. So the current yield of dividends would return all your capital in 11 years and that has occurred for the last 10 years apart and since basically that 2008 downturn if you get another 10 years of that you get a very good return you get all your money back in 11 years um and it's a little bit quicker than you would expect from some other big big dividend paying companies because there's a risk premium in there which drags the price down a little bit and drags that yield up a little bit and that's where you get the 
more 6 and 7% dividends coming out. On a PE basis, it's been between 13 and 18 in recent years. Currently, it's 14%. And when you compare that PE to their metrics, being a ROIC well over 30%, net profit over 50%, no debt, didn't say that before, but they have absolutely no debt, they have lots of cash, they have growing revenue, it's an exceptional price. Um, so it's all about this customer risk. And also your other standard risks, standard hazards, they're a manufacturer, there could be a fire, there could be a, um, a worker that gets harmed, their product could become obsolete, the demand, if there's another downturn, which there may well be, the demand for these premium coffee products could fall. However, I think we've come a long way in terms of social development to a point where it wouldn't be the first thing to go. These home coffee machines are not, they're not the state-of-the-art home appliance that they were in 2008. So I think it would be a little bit more um, tempered should the uh, find the economy turned down once more. I don't think they would see the same impact because of how standard and common these uh, home coffee machines have become. Uh, China and Malaysia risks. Malaysia is always volatile and China is uh, in a state of geopolitical turmoil as of as of the last few weeks, although two days ago there was a, a good development there but you never know it always goes one way and then the other and finally the risk of the cost of labor and raw materials and we've talked about how they minimize that risk so yeah my personal outlook on the company if the past five years the rate of growth continues for from that past five years in terms of in terms of share price which roughly lines up with earnings which then roughly lines up with your dividend yield because they're tied that the dividend yield is tied to the profit after tax. You you get a double in five years if the same rate continues. And in terms of their product, I think it's possible. The the coffee machines, yes, they're common, but they're still rapidly growing in in Astra in Australia and Asia, and they're still over six percent growth elsewhere in terms of demand and the industry size. So. That is fine, fine by me. Plus, if they truly do diversify in a material way, that blows it all open. That means the risk, that risk premium, if if it if now it's 70% on one customer and you get another customer, then it's like a big chunk of multiple expansion or a big chunk of that risk premium gets taken away. You might have half the risk premium. Or, or it would be less. It would maybe be a third of the risk premium would be cut off if that if they got a new customer. Uh, again, they, that customer has to develop over time and become a substantial part of the uh, the earnings pro or the revenue profile of the company. But I think the share price would be significantly blown open if there were a um, diversification of revenue. Just given the quality of their R and D processes and the management and the confidence that management have it seems to me i like and the fact they're out of taiwan i like the i like the taiwanese manufacturers they're very good um not that i know but the vibe is that taiwanese manufacturers are very good and being us educated being transparent all these things make me really like this company um but yeah on the other hand if customer a withdraws 
you've got to account for the fact that they might go down to net asset value, which is 10% of the current price. The only caveat to that is if they are the good company that I think they are, they could they could aggressively focus on other things and be earning maybe only a 15, 20% ROI. Even if they're earning a 10% ROI um, after losing customer A, you still get uh, a share price that is above net assets. Maybe it will only be half what it is today, but there's a little bit of protection in the fact that they could get more diverse. They, if they were forced to get more diverse revenue, they quite likely could. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of evidence for proficiency and just the other tailwinds in, in the uses of their control modules. So biotech, they haven't read anything about them being involved in manufacturing, automated manufacturing machines, but that's another tailwind. Um, in terms of industrial 4.0, it's these kinds of modules that are sequencing electrical um, electricity in these appliances. That's the kind of thing that a control module is. That's the kind of thing that is a potentially massive in industrial 4.0. Obviously, the most likely outcome is somewhere in the middle. I think that they will probably be reliant on these major customers for years to come. Maybe there'll be a tailing off in the growth of that revenue. I'm not sure how happy the customers are that these guys are earning so much on the on their um, IP, but it's their IP. Um, they 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 may partially diversify, but I, I I'm not counting on them actually materially diversifying. But even if they make thirty percent of their revenue come from other sources, that in itself is an incremental multiple expansion that occurs. Um, but yeah, my t main takeaway was that it's entirely possible that their hands-on experience and all the time they've spent with these customers means that they are completely indispensable to these customers, no matter how much they don't like it, but they probably have a good relationship. I don't know, but yeah, I think the odds are in their favor. So that's my report on Yuchi Technologies. Um, my name is Gregory Peck. I'm not sure what we're doing next week. Last week I did Bajaya Corporation and then a week later the managing director, Jalil Rashid, the guy I was talking about, quit. So take these presentations with a grain of salt. Um, I could be completely wrong. They could lose customer A tomorrow. But, yeah, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. You can listen on Google Podcasts or Spotify. Look at my website, a1goodinvesting.wordpress.com and have a good rest of the week. Thank you.